You're listening to the second episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. Be forewarned, a lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going more than a little bit wrong, but it is not intended as an attack on faith. It's about depression. If trigger warnings lowered rather than raised levels of emotional upset, I'd include one, but they don't, so I won't. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my adolescent life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 2, Turning Black. In 2021, it seems like maybe I should retitle this song, lest I be accused of Rachel Dolezal grade trans-race identification. Don't think I will, though. This second song is about being a teenager suffering depression just like my dad and mom and their parents before them. Being a teenager who attended a high school with students' council continually pressuring us to be positive and show school spirit, whatever the f*** that is. Being a teenager who attended youth group with the cool, affluent, preppy Christian kids, pressuring us all to be cheerful and enthusiastic about everything that went on there. The men who had, as far as I was concerned, tactically character-assassinated my father were the youth group leaders, and they would innocently ask us why Dad wasn't out at evening Bible study, and would urge me to smile, Jesus loves you. It all made me want to ram their Bible and hymn books right up the valley of Jezreel for them and see if that put a smile on my face. I spoke to a Christian social worker about these feelings once, and he predictably blamed me for even having them, and has avoided being in the same room as me ever since. Christians aren't supposed to have darkness, don't you know? Jesus was a cheerful guy, right? Always telling people to smile. How did I know I had depression back in high school? Well, I'm sure much of this will be absolutely familiar to anyone who is or has ever been a teenager, but for me it was like this. I was being asked to smile, be cheerful, warm, and friendly, and above all, eager and enthusiastic a whole lot about a whole lot of things, both at school and church. Apparently, the personality trait of extroversion has two components, assertiveness and enthusiasm. Somehow, I ended up with pretty much 100% assertiveness and 0% enthusiasm for much of anything. At least, the kind of showy outward enthusiasm praised by extroverts who think it's everyone's responsibility to pretend to be just like them. following content is provided by Myth Currently, I edit video and Myth audio files of lectures for online courses. American courses. I take online courses in things like Chaucer and Beowulf too. I couldn't help but notice that it seems de rigueur for Americans to start almost every public speaking engagement, sermon, talk, lecture, or speech by claiming to be terribly excited about the very prospect of doing that. Welcome to uh, the Canterbury Tales class. Um, I am excited to get to uh, Chaucer's greatest work. They're not grateful or happy or pleased. They don't feel fortunate or lucky to be speaking. No, they're always claiming to be downright pants-wettingly excited. Welcome all to our research methods course. We're extremely excited about it. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Chaucer class and to a brand new Mythgard semester. Uh, I am, I don't know about you, but I am very excited about this class this semester. At the start of one course, everyone was on the class discussion forum, and all of the American students were saying they just wanted to start out by just saying how excited they just were to be taking the course. My own introductory post said that being a Canadian of British descent, I could claim only to be pleased to be taking the course and had no plans to be excited about anything much that month or the next. 
This attracted some very outraged and borderline abusive responses for my having shot that particular sacred cow. The Beowulf lecturing professor himself, who ended up being Tom Shippey from all those Lord of the Rings DVD extras, so all these writers, I think, and I call them traumatized authors, they've all undergone severe trauma of one kind or another. They have to write their... Being own. Scottish and educated in England, said that whenever Americans instruct him to have a nice day, he invariably responds, Thank you, but I'm afraid I've made other plans. I grew up with dogs, so I know what puppies do when they get excited with the anticipation of something they expect to be delightful. Treats, walks, you coming home... I also grew up with cats and have a feline roommate currently, so I can tell you that cats don't act the same when they are excited about something. So in high school, and this is unchanged to this day, I feel like I'm continually being asked to get excited like a puppy who's been informed of an impending walk. Frisking about, vibrating with excess energy, salivating, momentary incontinence. Well, my cat sure gets excited when I say certain words like out and supper. How I can tell he's excited is that he is suddenly utterly alert, silent, and still. He gives intense eye contact and kind of freezes in place, head, ears, and tail straight up. And if he had to leap eight feet in the air, he's ready for that. But he's still and quiet. I think I'm more like that. And apparently not everybody correctly reads anything other than puppy-style excitement. In high school, I visibly lacked joy and excitement. This apparently made a certain sort of person really dislike me. It was like being a car with no gas, being asked to rev my engine and get ready for the race. The more I couldn't respond with enthusiasm and joy to supposedly joyful situations, the more miffed particular people got, and the more joy seemed like something utterly unattainable for someone like me, like a place I'd never visit. This was scary and depressing. Hey Redman, it's Spirit Week again, and as you know, today is Tweed Tuesday, so we sure hope you're wearing lots of tweed today. Captain Pizzazz will be going through the cap at lunchtime to count great spirit imaginary pep school points. Hope you're all as excited about Thursday's game as I am. Go Red and White! You know what? Football games, pep rallies, cheerleaders, Spirit Weeks, and all of that, it's all American. And I'm not. Many Americans hate that stuff too. Not all Americans equate volume and shrillness with charm. But Canadian high schools have always had a really stupid habit of having statistically superior discipline, methods, and standards than the average American high school has, and yet for some reason being desperate to imitate one as much as possible. Because America is big, loud, expensive, brightly colored, artificially flavored, and constantly interesting. And Canada just isn't as cool in any way that isn't measured in Celsius. Nothing much goes on here. But I had to put up with continual American-style enthusiasm pageants all through high school. It was exhausting and depressing, literally. And the thing is, getting out of bed and into the shower, eating breakfast and getting to school or church took more positive forward momentum than I had many days. I turned 16, had quickly gotten a full driver's license, as we did back then, and was allowed to drive the older of the two old family cars to church and school. So, if I showed up... I felt like I'd more or less driven in on fumes, and I was lucky, and they were lucky, that I'd managed to get there at all. Then suddenly, someone would be in my face shrilly demanding to know where my school spirit was as I wasn't dressed like my favorite teacher. Teacher Twin Thursday, right? Pep grade spirit imaginary school points hung in the balance. I'd come in to write a physics test I hadn't studied for, not to compete in the enthusiasm pageant I hadn't known or cared about to begin with. It was like enthusiasm was something I was continually being asked to spend, and it wasn't something I ever really had any of to begin with. You must be depressed. 
the wisest students council excited kids and youth group perky teenagers diagnosed me on the spot. I assumed they knew what they were talking about, but it really can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, can't it? People avoid you because they think you're depressed, and that makes you sad and lonely. And there's pressure to go get medicated so you're less of a downer for students council and youth group. I gradually started wearing more and more black. For some reason, it felt like me, and it made me feel safe somehow. This song is partly just about that. At first, just a pair of black sneakers, but soon I was wearing black t-shirts most days, soon with a black jacket or long-sleeved black shirt over that. It made me feel a little bit better. Eventually, I replaced many of my blue jeans with black ones. I went from wearing one thing that was black to wearing one thing that was not black most days. Are you trying to seem like a Satanist? Teens at youth group asked me disapprovingly. Bit of a bad testimony to unbelievers, don't you think? I had large, thick 80s glasses, and I'd gotten the kind that turns into sunglasses under bright sunlight, and they had a way of turning at least a bit dark under most light to really help me get that Mark David Chapman chic going. I stopped going outside much at all, and I experienced a growth spurt and stopped eating much either, so I suddenly got quite thin and very pale. I have never been tall. I had a growing collection of knives, a BB gun, a straight razor, an axe, and a razor blade in my bedroom. I carved gouges into random things. I started lighting little fires. Safe little fires, though. I was, it must be noted, always very kind to animals because they all seemed to like me and wanted to hang out. But every time some wealthy teenage girl tipped her head reproachfully to one side and whined, Where's your school spirit? Where's your love of Jesus? At school or youth group, I realized I wanted to kill them. Or failing that, myself. I didn't like my days, weeks, and months. I wasn't looking forward to anything in them. They were an endless routine of church services, math quizzes, pep rallies, and youth group activities. And I wasn't allowed, and would have felt deeply guilty, listening to the enormous body of pop music that's out there about parents just not understanding, or why don't you all just f -f -f fade away, or I am an anarchist and teachers leave those kids alone and all that. But I just might have been getting depressed. My morning routine soon involved me driving into school if I crawled out of my lair at all, checking the schedule on the wall to see how many of my teachers were sick or off coaching sports, or if there was a pep rally assembly or football game preempting any of my classes. If too much of my academic school day was getting cancelled for meaningless random crap, I got right back in the big black family car and drove stiff-spined back home and went right back to bed. There's a pep rally. English is cancelled. Someone would tell me enthusiastically, eagerly searching for an answering enthusiasm in my dead eyes behind their dim glasses. We're all going down to the gym. We're going to cram in there and get really excited and yell as loud as we can. And I would once again realize that I wasn't sure I'd ever had a gram of pep a day in my life. Where's your school spirit? They'd demand. Buried in a shallow grave right next to my civic pride and Christmas joy, I would tell them. And if there was an English class that day, I'd just go home. Why had I come in to begin with? I spent more and more time in my room in the dark. Deeply, in a Neil Young phase, Curry from across the road would try to get me out of my bedroom by singing, Everybody's going out having fun I'm a fool for staying home and having none I really enjoyed singing hymns at youth group and was fascinated by people who knew enough guitar or piano theory to lead the music at a hymn sing. I ended up doing that with guitar a time or two, but my skill level was always borderline. Here's a bit of tape from 1989 at Red Pine Camp in Ontario. 
gestures to perform to I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. The teenage daughter of one or another of the men who churched over my father would tell me, looking to see how excited this made me. We sing, I've got the bubbling belief that baffles the Buddhist way down in my heart, where, down in my heart, where, down in my heart. None at all was how much excitement it all stirred in me. Made me want to drive a bulldozer over the person asking, though. I really don't like that kind of thing, I would say. You need to make an effort to be more positive. I would be told. Okay, I am positive that I really don't like that kind of thing, I would say. Very funny. Don't you love Jesus and singing hymns to him, though? They would ask reproachfully. Then they'd go off and play more volleyball or charades, wink, or dusty board games that weren't chess or scrabble. Brethren people had major gaps in knowledge when it came to pop culture questions and trivial pursuit, it turned out. Most of them, anyway. Some didn't. That game might out you as having sneaked out to TV or the movies a few times too often. You might, for instance, embarrassingly know what the name of Michael Knight's boss, the beach club from Magnum P.I., or A.J.'s brother from Simon & Simon was. I didn't love doing much of anything in groups most days. I loved books, loved messing around with musical instruments and recording equipment. I slowly started to overcome the in-trained guilt and love Neil Young's cryptic, simple songs for non-singers. Just the acoustic stuff at first, of course. I got deep, passionate crushes on brethren girls who had pledged themselves to anyone but a brethren guy, usually, and similarly deep, passionate crushes on girls at school who then went on to date much of the hockey team. I was sleeping all the time, not eating, and reading endless books about cowboys, elves, knights, pirates, spacemen, robots, time lords, Dunedain rangers, Jedi, cyborgs, barbarians, dinosaurs, knights, ninjas, and other killers who killed a lot of things that needed killing. English class in grade 12 was Canadian literature, so mainly featured stories about old women looking out windows, reflecting on missed past opportunities while waiting to die of cancer, while absolutely nothing happened, had happened before, or ever would happen. I was writing some very self-pitying goth poetry without knowing what goths were. I was making mixtapes from the radio of dark, somber old people's music and listening to it in the dark with the headphones my dad had once used as he recorded sermons. And the thing is, Though I was alone pretty much all of the time, this stuff made me feel much less alone. I identified with characters in books, and I realized that I wasn't the first person ever to feel sad and write a sad song or poem. You're depressed because you're listening to depressing music. People would tell me. You're depressed because you're not coming out to all the fun stuff and having fun. People would also tell me. If you put a smile on your face more often, you'd feel a lot better. People would further tell me. I don't think any of them had a clue. I couldn't imagine a single one of them without a phony, performative smile pasted on his or her face. And I lacked the pep, the enthusiasm, the positive emotional energy to fake enthusiasm, and also believed that faking moods was a counterproductive form of lying. And I told only the truth, and too much of the truth, all day long. At youth group, I was bored and humiliated by sports in general. My dad was my gym teacher, which tells you about all you need to know about that. For me, sports has always been my father's boring job that he hated. I especially hated to play dodgeball in the school gym we'd rent from the school where my father worked 
because it would need me to take off my glasses and then not be able to see well enough to play anyway. So I'd sit on the stage. Why aren't you playing? A mom once demanded of me. Because I really don't want to, I told her. Quite directly, but politely, I thought. But it's fun! She protested. You have to! No, it really isn't, I told her. And I don't. Come on, play! You'll like it once you give it a chance. I won't, trust me. Everyone has to play! Really? I'm leaving then. And I would leave. Almost like there was nothing going on there for someone like me to enjoy, and no one there to not enjoy it with. So rude to someone who was trying so hard to be nice to the cranky, creepy kid most likely to Columbine. For a while there, I met a guy who would also sit on the stage, and who also didn't like sports. So we were friends. We had to be. We didn't like all the same stuff. No matter what way you look at it, whether the Christian's on the earth, whether the Christian's in his grave, whether the Christian's caught up when the Lord comes, happiness is in the pathway of the Christian life. And the Lord wants us to be happy all the time not just some of the time. At the time of recording this podcast, we're still experiencing periodic shutdowns, close-ups, and bring-downs due to COVID. And spoilers, I teach in a high school. One of the things people who clearly somehow enjoyed their own high school experience back in the day have kept doing is trying to cheer the kids up by instituting official spirit days of wearing Santa hats or pajamas or funny socks or whatever. The kids, by and large, are having none of it. One staffer said our student body seemed like maybe they were a bit depressed and decided what would really cheer us all up December, coming in in the cold, cold Canadian winter mornings masked against COVID, would be to pipe some nice cheery Christmas music into all of the rooms really loud first thing in the morning, perk everyone right up and turn those frowns upside down. Well, it won't surprise you to hear that I emailed that person immediately to let him know that he was right. Some of the students did seem depressed, dispirited even. I went on to tell him that more people kill themselves at Christmas than at any other time of the year, and that there's a simple reason for that. The heavy, bone-crushing pressure to be, or at least seem, cheerful, happy, and okay for that whole month. Pressure that is sometimes too much. Normal months don't have these challenges. At Christmas time, you have to be merry. I told him that when I'm in at work but dodging my depression, one solid verse of Barbie Girl by Aqua or a rousing chorus of All I Want for Christmas is You will suffice to have me fumbling around for a loaded firearm. I twice sincerely offered to drop by and explain to him how to actually make school easier for actually depressed students. Of course, he didn't answer the email offers, and the cheerful music was duly piped in annoyingly each day. Thanks to COVID, I was home for Christmas, and so far the whole month after that, too. The days like the nights, have been delightfully silent ones. I don't know if I'll ever have that chat with him, but here's how it would go if I did. Imagine, Jim, you are like a car, only you don't keep your tires filled up with air from the gas station. Every morning, you wake up, and you see how much air is just naturally in your tires for you to drive around on throughout the day. If there isn't much air pressure in there, there isn't much you can do about it. Some mornings, your tires seem to be well inflated, so you'd drive around as normal. Other days, though, they're so flat, you know not to try taking yourself out onto the highway. So you stay home and see if you are in better shape in the afternoon, or the evening, or the next day. Many days, though, you wake up, and your tires are pretty soft, but you make a judgment. There might be just enough air pressure in them for you to carefully limp into school or work and drive home just as gingerly afterwards, 
fingers crossed, the tires stay on the vehicle. And you think of that as functioning. This is what functional depressives do. Other people, though, tend to wake up with overinflated tires and need to race around aggressively a lot and hope that some of that leaks out before their tires pop. But you, you creep into the parking lot in the morning, almost on your rims, and you're told, Hey, we feel full of pep and school spirit, so without any warning, we've suddenly decided not to accomplish any of the usual work you drag yourself in to do today. Smile! Instead, we're doing off-roading, and tomorrow we're doing a rally race to Rochester, then a road trip to Renfrew for Rigatoni the next. It'll be great! How excited does that make you? Would you like to see what happens when the tires tear right off this Toyota, you wonder to yourself? Why did I bother coming in today? It wasn't easy to get here, and it's not like we'll be doing any of our work at our work. In my case anyway, pretending to be happy absolutely does not make me happier. I've tried, of course. In fact, it's all the demands to expend positive energy and enthusiasm like they're cheap that grinds me down to a nub and makes me despair of ever getting up off the ground. Obedience and happiness go together. Not all God's children are equally happy. In order to walk in communion with Him, for never say that you're walking with God if you're going in a path of disobedience. God will never uh, walk with you in that path. Well, he'll never leave you, but you'll never enjoy His presence if you're going on in a path of disobedience. Back in the day, I wrote a cheerful poem about how this felt. It imagined the depression itself as being like a thick, icy, caustic, weighty, tarry black fluid that was slowly filling me up from the tips of my toes to my throat, and it really felt like I might choke and drown in it. It felt like chilling, acidic spite was flooding over my head. It felt like I leaked it everywhere I went, leaving black, sticky footprints and puddles behind me. In one of my books, I imagined that maybe it formed from all of the positive, unexpressed, and unpursued feelings and impulses rotting unused in there. Maybe if you're a person who is full of love, but you don't have anyone to show it to or know how to express it very well at all, it's like being a fridge full of fish. If you leave all those fish in there unfrozen for nine or ten months, a sickly, wet, stinking, sticky stream might start leaking out the bottom. A few years out of high school, I learned to play an E minor on the guitar. And I thought it sounded delightfully sad. So I played it a lot and eventually turned my poem into a song about depression that started and returned to E minor over and over again. I thought the verses had something of Pink Floyd's Breathe in them, and the chorus a bit of Bruce Springsteen's The River. I've recorded it many ways, usually trying to bury those influences. Future episodes will go into how I eventually got over my entrained superstitious discomfort with distorted guitar as being evil and angry and satanic and eventually came to love it. I did many versions of turning black, using a distortion pedal and wobbling the neck a bit to make the sound wobble, along with a bit of whammy bar use. I thought my thin, scratchy distortion sound was great, but when I was in a second studio replacing the drums and the young engineer there heard I had an old tube amp at home, when my uncle had found out to the trash, he had me bring it in. I had been, of course, recording just the one thin, distorted guitar track to each song, but the guy took the amp into a little soundproof room, turned it up so loud I thought it was going to explode, like halfway to full volume, and had me sit across the studio from it, 
shut away in the control room where I needed headphones to hear it and play it to the track with no effects on it whatsoever, just the turned up amp. He explained that tube amps sound special when they're under duress. I had to admit it sounded large in the headphones. Then he had me do it again. I thought my first take was fine, I normally use first takes for things as often as possible, but I humored him with a second take. Then he put 100% of the first take in the left ear and 100% of the second take in the right ear, told me this was called doubling the guitar and hard panning it, and played it for me. It sounded, I thought, kind of like surf crashing against a rocky shoreline, which sound I then kind of wanted for all of my songs. Less metallic steel brush bite and more fuzzy, watery roar. The version of Turning Black I'm going with now, though, isn't that version. It's one I did 100% myself, 100% in my apartment, with 0% other people making any sounds or contributions to it whatsoever. I have a kick drum which tends to sound like this when I play it. For this version of Turning Black, for some reason I decided to see what it would sound like if I subbed in a boron, a traditional Irish drum I don't really know how to play properly, for the bass drum part. I play the snare part separately because I'm a poor drummer. The idea for using a drop D tuning on an acoustic guitar and not for thrash metal came from being at an open stage in Almont and seeing a guy in a racing wheelchair wheel in, borrow a guitar, and take the stage. Turns out he mainly used a racing wheelchair so it didn't get in the way of his playing guitar. He detuned the borrowed guitar to drop D. Messed around with it a bit. and then ripped out Man of Constant Sorrow from the movie O Brother Where Art Thou. And I knew I had to try that kind of thing myself. The alternate tuning allowed him a bunch of fiddly little things that actually weren't that hard to do. Given that my sister seldom feels like recording music, and has often been in other parts of the world, I got decent at counterfeiting her backing harmony in my falsetto range.
once again, this version of Turning Black lacked the professionalism of a bunch of session players, but it involved me discovering what I sounded like a lot more than ever before. But I'll fetch 
where the violence once served Words can dispose of the hurt that's incurred Games cannot help me and so I send them back Your eyes burn so white in the glare of my black Maybe someday